0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you modernist breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com podcast. There's no smell in the world of food equal to the perfume of baking bread, and few greater pleasures in eating than sitting down with a slice of freshly baked bread, good butter, and a cup of tea or coffee. The first time you make a recipe, may not measure up to your expectations. Moreover, once you have made a particular loaf successfully, there's no guarantee that it will work automatically thereafter. Many factors determine the quality of a loaf of bread, the weather, the humidity, the temperature, the flour, the yeast, the balance of liquid to dry ingredients, maybe even the temperament or chemistry of the person making it. Therefore, bread making is something of a gamble, but it is interesting to see a loaf come out slightly different each time, although it is basically the same bread. Despite the uncertainty of the results, you can do practically anything with dough, if you know what you're doing, and get a good loaf. For example, you can put dough in the refrigerator in the middle of a rising to slow the process, or you can speed up the second rising by placing the pan over a kettle of boiling, steaming water. I know one person who likes to let the bread overbake in order to get a thick, crunchy crust. Many people like to let the dough overrise so that it's full of big holes and is chewy and crusty. You can throw a recipe together, or you can be meticulous, and chances are, both approaches are likely to produce a good bread. It is a mysterious business, this making of bread, and once you're hooked by the miracle of yeast, you'll be a bread maker for life. What you just heard was a reading that I had during my wedding, right before the vows, an excerpt from James Beard on Bread, and... I think it explains not just a recipe for bread, but a recipe for life. I'm Michael Harlan, Terkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. Modernist Cuisine is an interdisciplinary team in Bellevue, Washington, founded and led by Nathan Mervold. The group includes scientists, research and development chefs, and a full editorial department, all dedicated to advancing the state of culinary art ...through the creative application of scientific knowledge and experimental techniques. A state-of-the-art research kitchen and laboratory is the backbone of modernist cuisine. Stocked with a centrifuge, rotary evaporator, freeze dryer, pizza oven, laser cutter, autoclave, and even a soft-serve machine, the lab is a culinary wonderland. Their team of research and development chefs work alongside chemists, physicists, and machinists in the pursuit of new cooking innovations... They've written and produced books like Modernist Cuisine, The Art and Science of Cooking, Modernist Cuisine at Home, and The Photography of Modernist Cuisine, and most currently, Modernist Bread, a multi-volume book. The Cooking Lab, Modernist Cuisine's in-house publishing division, publishes all of Modernist Cuisine's printed books. In addition to publishing, the team also provides consulting, R&D, and invention services to food companies and culinary equipment makers, large and small. On December 10th, 2013, episode 170 of The Food Scene, I had Nathan Mervold on.
2: We wanted to show people a vision of food they had not seen before.
1: Nathan, he's always been ambitious, cooking his family a full Thanksgiving meal at age 9. He graduated high school at 14, had two master's degrees and a PhD in theoretical and mathematical physics at 23 from Princeton, and did postdoctoral cosmology work at the University of Cambridge with Stephen Hawking for more than a brief history of time. But there was something about cooking that stuck with him. Even through his years at Microsoft as chief technology officer, he asked Bill Gates for a leave of absence to attend cooking school in France, but first had to stage at a restaurant one day a week for two years to get in. So he did that, and he kept cooking. He kept questioning why we cook the way we do. The Cooking Lab was then founded, a place where he could experiment with new techniques, equipment, and ideas. And there he wrote a book called Modernist Cuisine that five-volume, 2,000-plus-page, 40-pound tome. But all of this knowledge just piqued more interest and made Nathan ask, why not? That's where we are today. Of all that we understand in the ever-expanding universe, we are still a society of convention when it comes to food. Nathan thinks there's much more to explore.
3: I... I think Nathan Marvold is one of the, well, he's, he's definitely one of the very coolest people I've ever had occasion to um, meet.
4: By the way, this is Cynthia Nims, a food writer who has been a longtime collaborator with the Modernist Cuisine team.
3: I love being around smart people who doesn't. I mean, I think it's fun to be around um, folks whose intelligence just makes you want to learn more and soak up more knowledge. And he's clearly had a longtime passion for food himself. Obviously had another job. He had some other, you know, his work life was not necessarily um, directed towards food, but it was such a huge passion for him that he wanted to go to La Varenne Cooking School where I had been a student. Um, and he wanted to participate in a program that was geared towards professional chefs. It was, so it was expecting a higher level of um, expertise and experience coming in, and when Ann Willen got this application from this fellow in you know the Seattle area who had no kitchen background but wanted to go to the professional program, she was like, uh, Cynthia, you live near this guy. Can you go meet with him and like suss out his interest and in why he wants to do this? And you know, do you f- you know help me understand if he really would fit in to a professional program? So I went to his office, and I met with him, and we just chatted about food, and, you know, I didn't, at the time, I didn't, I mean, I knew him from, I knew him from um, just maybe the news now and again, but I didn't know much about um, his background and love of food. So that was very, very interesting, and I'm like, and he'll be fine, he'll be good. (laughs) Ever since, Nathan has been
5: seeking explanations in the food world. Modernist cuisine
2: uh, was written because I wanted to really explore and understand the science-inspired techniques of a generation of chefs that had been working in pushing the boundaries of cuisine forward. So people like Ferran Adria uh, or uh, Heston Blumenthal, uh, people who had been inspired by the books of Harold McGee, which said, hey, science really has something to this, or the books of Hervétis, um, a French uh, Uh, writer on the topic. And so there was arguably a modernist movement. Um, It wasn't called that, but there was a set of of this. And modernist cuisine was about, initially, we thought, well, let's just document what these guys do and explain it. Not long ago, we wound up discovering lots of new things, but but fundamentally, there was a movement. And we were joining that movement and uh, effectively writing the book about the movement. Not so with bread.
1: In fact, just exactly the opposite. This is a special collaborative podcast series that takes a fresh look at one of the oldest staples of the human diet, bread. Although it may seem simple, bread is much more complex than you think. From the microbes that power fermentation to the economics of growing grain, there's a story behind every loaf. Each episode will reveal those stories and more, beginning with Bread's surprising and often complicated past from the perspective of people who are passionate about Bread and shaping its future. Two of these voices come from the Modernist Bread co-authors Nathan Mirvold and head chef Francisco Magoya, who you'll meet shortly. They will share insights from this massive five-volume, 2,642-page book, the culmination of over four years of nonstop research, photography, experiments, writing, and baking. They're joined by top bakers and bread experts from around the world, many of which we interviewed here at Heritage Radio Network. Whether you love making bread or simply eating it, this show is sure to feed your curiosity and hunger for a truly great loaf.
5: (laughs) The first thing I had to do was make sure he didn't throw my pre-ferments away. Remember my buckets? He used to make fun of me, all my buckets, all over the walk-in.
4: And that was Christina Peterson Magoya, a bread baker in her own right, who met her husband Francisco when she was working at Bouchon Bakery in Napa, California, Thomas Keller's much lauded bakery. Francisco came there as their pastry chef.
6: A lot of the loaves that we did went towards that experimentation and to determining, you know, what direction we were going. And they weren't always absolute, uh, but for the most part, we were able to get some really great answers.
4: Francisco is now head chef of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. He started cooking in his hometown of Mexico City, where he was surrounded by the cultures of his parents, Italian-American and Spanish. He went to art school, planning to study painting, drawing and sculpture, but ended up working in a hotel restaurant at age 16. He quickly realized that the kitchen was where he belonged. To talk
6: more about numbers, we did 1,500 experiments. Fifteen hundred experiments. That's in the context of three years working on a project. Fifteen hundred experiments. That's five hundred experiments a year. If you have three hundred and sixty-five days, and you know we're not working every day of the week, so a lot of these experiments were overlapping. A lot of these experiments were happening simultaneously. So the idea was, I have uh, what we used to have four uh, R and D chefs. Now we have uh, three. But everybody had their set of experiments that they were working on in coordination with our food scientists. So there was oftentimes where we were probably having 10 experiments happening at the same time um, so that we could get to all of these things. And, you know, some were duds, but that's that just happens. You know, if you have 10 duds, you probably have one awesome result. and It's worth it. I mean, I think it's worth it from that regard. And that's you. But you learn from those duds as well.
2: So what we try to do in the book is two things. One is to try to communicate, well, here is what we think and generally by extension most folks think done would be for this particular loaf. And we'd like to tell you enough that you could replicate that at home. Even if you've never tasted that particular bread and you don't really know what it's supposed to be like, we'd like to give you as much information as possible so you could learn it. And that's important to us because uh, a lot of cookbooks say, "Do this, do this, do this." And if you follow those things exactly, you'll you'll get something for sure. But life is difficult. Uh, things vary. Uh, you often don't know uh, where you went wrong. And you know, it's sort of like the difference between telling you exactly. Uh, a set of complicated road directions versus saying oh and if you see this sign you've gone too far well that's really useful because otherwise you might keep driving a really long way in the wrong direction
1: we're broadcasting from heritage radio network studio housed in two stevedore shipping containers behind roberta's pizza in bushwick brooklyn HRN is a nonprofit, member supported, food focused radio station with a mission to create a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious world. You can listen to any of our 35 plus weekly shows live at heritageradionetwork.org or our podcasts on demand. I couldn't do this all alone. I'm luckily here, joined by two of my modernist breadcrumb team members and Heritage Radio Network staffers. Hi, I'm Conor O'Donovan.
5: Hi, I'm Jordan Warner.
1: Let's talk about your bread memories and, you know, your your first taste of a freshly baked loaf. Do do you remember those days?
5: I don't remember the taste, but I remember the smell. In my parents' house, it was a big, um, like lofted cathedral ceiling. And we had one of those 1990s bread machines that we actually called R2-D2 because it looked (laughs) more like the Star Wars character than something that would make bread. And it would make these weirdly shaped like square loaves that seemed like they were taller than any other loaf of bread I'd ever seen. And I just remember the smell that that machine would kind of fill up the whole house. And I don't remember what the bread tasted like from that, but thinking that all bread came out of an R2-D2 was kind of my earliest (laughs) memory about bread.
1: Now, now, Connor, do you remember that same...
4: Did they have those in Ireland or...? Uh, no, not that I remember. Uh, we bought most of our bread. We had a lot of sliced pan, which is uh, quite heavily processed. So maybe it was made by a robot, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't in our own home. You know,
1: it's funny that we mentioned scents because that, that is your first relationship to a freshly baked loaf, mm. that aroma wafting through the air. And, you know, it, it's so yeasty. It's so wanted and it's from that my art effect, you know, starches turning into sugars and turning into something that you want to eat, that you salivate for. Mm. Um, did you eat bread more as a perfunctory thing, you know, a, a sustenance
4: rather than pleasure? Uh, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Occasionally, I don't actually remember this myself, but as a two or three year old, you know, I'd be reluctant to go to sleep. So uh, my mother would use uh, bread as a kind of pacifying uh, device. Um, so then, you know, she and my dad would go back to bed, uh, hoping to get some sleep. But then, obviously, I'd start chewing with my mouth open, and that would uh, <laughs> yeah keep everyone up. So that was uh, one of the earliest memories
5: for me. I don't remember kind of eating the bread itself, but tied to that same memory of the bread machine was sticking my hand in the bowl and eating the dough. And I was always the kid that would eat the brownie batter so much that there wasn't enough to fill the pan. And I think I did the same thing with the bread dough that we were making. And I kind of liked it more before it was cooked than afterwards.
1: (laughs) But, But have either of you baked bread?
5: I have unsuccessfully many times. There was, when I was in college, I lived in Burlington, Vermont, and went to a lot of dinner parties. And one day I decided that I was going to make a loaf of no-knead bread for a dinner party. because The idea of no-knead sounded easy and fun and impressive. And so I got everything I needed. It was like an hour before I was supposed to be at the dinner party. And I hadn't read all the way through the recipe yet. So I didn't realize that the reason it's no-knead is that it needs to sit for 18 hours before you can bake it. <laughs> I showed up empty-handed.
4: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the closest I got to baking bread uh, would be an oven baguette. Uh, so as a teenager, I used to sail a lot. So you wouldn't have a lot of time to, you know, prepare meals. Uh, so I'd go back to the, you know, dressing room, get my oven baguette sandwich, and uh, unfortunately, you know, through process of, I guess maybe uh, aging or just you know, uh, bad uh, conditions, basically the bread, the ham, and the cheese would all be basically the same colour <laughs> when I came to eat it. So not the most appetising.
1: The many shades of bread. Yeah. <laughs> So we're gonna have eight episodes. The first one all about history, pre ferment. Episode two is all about grains and flowers, the great civilizations of grain.
4: Episode three, yeast, leavening, fermentation on the rise. Episode four, history part two, pre-industrialization, milling about.
5: Episode five, Politics Against the Grain. Episode six Shapes and Scoring Balls and Sticks.
1: Episode 7, Baking, Thermal Mass. Episode 8, Breadbox. And in those episodes, we're going to hear from grain growers, flour millers, bakers, scientists, writers, and historians. Like Chad Robertson, Apollonia Poilon, Jim Leahy, Peter Reinhardt, Glenn Roberts, Eric Kaiser, Ken Forkish, Stephen Jones, Maria Speck, and many more. Now that we've taken care of introductions, we're ready to sift through the world of bread. And just like with any loaf, we need to start at the beginning. Well, if you start with the history of bread, the natural question
2: is, okay, what was the first bread? And for many, many, many years, people thought that bread uh, must have dated from the time of large-scale grain agriculture. Uh, That would put it about... 10 or 12,000 years ago. Uh, A classic book on the history of bread uh, from uh, many years ago was called 6,000 Years of Bread. Well, over time, we found that agriculture started a little sooner than we'd thought, so that went from 6,000 to 12,000. But then a uh, a researcher uh, from Edmonton, Canada, was excavating a cave in Mozambique, and he finds pounding stones that were clearly used to pound grain into flour. Now we know they were used for this because when you look at them with a microscope, they still had the grain embedded in them. And they were well-worn. They'd been used a lot. So someone was making flour. And when they did the careful dating of this, it turns out it's a hundred thousand years old. So why was somebody making flour? And the first th- thing that comes in is you say, well, OK, if grain agriculture started 10 or 12,000 years ago, what the hell were they grinding? Well, the answer is they were grinding wild grains. And it makes sense that any food that um, that we'd eventually cultivate, you'd eat wild first. Otherwise, why would you bother cultivating it? You weren't out there cultivating random things. Uh And uh, this particular grain is wild sorghum. Uh, Sorghum is a grain that's native to Africa, and it's still grown today. In fact, in many parts of Africa, they make a bread out of sorghum today. And uh, the
1: the simplest of these is a sorghum-based injera. If you were to look at a map of the world and replace a country's flag with their national flatbreads, you'd see similarities across all cultures. From pizza to pide, it all begins with the indigenous grain, the germination of something bigger, broader, and globally grasped.
2: Wheat very likely originated from wild grasses that are native to parts of Turkey. And oh my God, did uh, the grains that they developed there, which is primarily barley and wheat, those became enormously successful and are still the most successful grains uh, sort of to this day. Uh, entire civilizations got built on this. The barley was the foundation of the um, uh, Babylonian civilization. Uh, wheat primarily, but also some other grains uh, of the Egyptians. In East Asia, uh, rice was the grain that they developed. In uh Mesoamerica, uh, Central and me- uh, America and Mexico, it was corn. Uh, in South America, they had some grain-like things. Technically, they're not grains because they're not grasses. Quinoa and amaranth, uh, which have become uh, popular m- most recently.
5: It's in these vast varieties that each minuscule granule of grain holds a greater significance than its size. It's a story rarely considered, almost too common, yet widespread, and should be as revered as our beloved breads.
2: So uh, across uh, the world, our ancestors figured out how to grow grains. And uh, each of the grains that was uh, pioneered in different areas has its own characteristics. And to a large extent, this is the luck of the draws to where those things grew. Um, Africa was home to sorghum and teff, and some kinds of millet. Uh, Of those, the only one that's grown in really large volume today anywhere is sorghum. Uh, Teff is grown because Ethiopian injera is really good. Um, There's a few other uh, odd ones. Phonio is a a grain grown in Africa. But uh, those grains uh, generally were relatively limited compared to the grains that were grown uh, and and figured out elsewhere. The, The Fertile Crescent area... Uh, uh and over into Turkey what's today Iraq and uh, Kurdistan so in uh, in South America, quinoa and amaranth uh, uh, were uh, grain-like things. I say grain like because technically they um, they're not uh, the seeds of grasses or seeds of other kinds of plants. Uh, those have become popular relatively recently. Those have not been uh, incredible export crops. Um, Probably the single most successful crop on earth uh, from a grain perspective is uh, corn. And corn is an amazing story of taking a uh, grass called teosinte, which looks nothing like corn, and lots of genetic engineering, but not genetic engineering by modern techniques. I mean genetic engineering by selective breeding, but a lot of it transformed it from this grass that had a few pathetic little seeds into this powerhouse of the civilizations of the New World. Uh, uh, All across uh, the southern and southwestern part of the United States and Mexico and down into Central America, uh, corn was king. And corn is also today the biggest staple crop in Africa – um, because it's such a great grain. Uh, of course, Asia had its grains, millet, but the big story was rice. Uh, rice is another very complicated thing to learn uh, how to uh, grow. It's got a very, very difficult uh, life cycle. You have to flood it sometimes. It needs
1: lots of water, but not at other times. From Turkey to Tuscany, the terrain may differ, but the innate quality of grain is essentially the same. Simultaneously, societies all over the world were looking to decode the power of grain, grinding it down to a usable form, creating man-made mills to break down this kernel of truth.
2: The great thing about grain is it forms a dry, hard little package quite naturally, which can keep for years. That's important to the plant because it may be years before there's the right rain conditions and other things for for it to sprout. Now, it's a problem for us humans because... Our teeth really can't break those things. So what we wind up doing is grinding it. And the technology for grinding has evolved enormously, and that's gone part and parcel with creating bread. The simplest uh, approach is called a saddle quern. In Mexico, that's called a a metate, where you have a long stone with a sort of a trough-like stone below it, and you move it back and forth. And this grinds the bread. The stone also breaks off and little pieces of it get into the stuff. And it means that uh, the early cultures that were grain-based, such as the Anasazi, had terrible teeth wear. Not from from failing to brush or floss, because their their cornmeal was, not only was it corn grits, but it was stone grits, too. (laughs) Because there was stone in there. Now, to make this more efficient... The Romans invented the rotary quern. In the rotary quern, you have a cone-shaped stone. Then on top of that, you've got a cap, which also fits the cone. You can put grain down the middle and it will feed in, and then you rotate that. And as you rotate it, it grinds the grain. The great thing about the rotary motion is you could then have, for example, a donkey hitched to it walking in a circle. Not a terribly exciting thing for the donkey, but boy, it made a lot of flour. The next step up was to have two millstones that were uh, mounted close together, big, flat, round stones that would uh, rotate. And there the rotation started being provided by water. The Romans had water-driven mills, as did people all the way up into the 19th century. So the, the notion of, of catching water uh, or finding a place where water is falling or going through a height difference allowed you to then make a water wheel that had a bunch of paddles so that the motion and the falling of the water would mo- turn it, and then those could turn this big wheel. Uh, well, this was a fundamental fixture in almost every Western society for several thousand
7: years.
4: Red's origin story gets a rise out of many of our experts. Jim Chevalier, a food historian, has a different take.
7: In fact, I was just thinking of this yesterday because a very common question is where did bread come from? And it basically it's an unanswerable question, but there are two different paths that you can follow. And one is, you know, you go back through the genealogy of Western civilization, which is from the Romans back to the Greeks to the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, and starting pretty much with Sumeria, uh, where, for instance, you have the first flood narrative, and lots of things that go on to uh, other cultures afterwards. And they made beer. And one theory is that in making beer and working with all this, um, you know, cooked cooked grain, they simply realized you could harden it, you would end up with bread. Now, that's fairly theoretical, but fact is some of the earliest bread we know is from Sumeria in the lineage of Western culture, which ultimately is what has produced the, the most of the bread we know today. Meanwhile, separately in the Neolithic area, uh, they found these lake dwellings in Switzerland, and I can't remember the exact, I don't know if it was 3000 BC, or but it was thousands of years uh, before Christ, or anyway, before the Common Era, if you prefer. And you have what's basically gruel on a hot rock. You just take gruel and heat it, and you get this messy thing that's coherent. My guess is that uh, on that side, Bread was just invented because somebody realized you could, you know, first people realized you could eat grains by cooking them in the water. So for a while you had gruel and then who knows All it takes is one little piece of the gruel falling on a hot rock and oh, wow, look, it became solid. And of course, when it's solid, you can walk with it, which is not a negligible uh, thing when you're a hunter, for instance.
5: Hunter, gatherer, baker, humankind had fire and a burning desire to bake.
2: Anyway, regardless of whether it's leavened or not, is almost certainly true that the first way that bread was baked was to put it on a rock. Rocks are readily available. They withstand the heat. They hold the heat. Um, and if you put your batter or your dough or whatever it is on a rock, by God, it'll cook. Um, in fact, uh, we decided we would try to make the first bread as a recreation, and so we uh, went and got some really nice round rocks and we built a big fire and we we did all this for a photo shoot so we could have a photo of the first bread, right? Well, we forgot to grease the rock. I'm thinking, oh shit. If this first set of shots does not work, we're going to have to, it'll take forever for us to scrub this thing. We'll have to go heat another rock up because clearly we'll never scrape the... Uh, our sort of proto-sorghum injura off of the rock. Totally wrong. It turns out as the thing baked, it peeled right off the rock. It was naturally no stick, which really confused me because although this was a smooth-ish rock, it wasn't totally smooth. I'm thinking, how could this possibly happen? But it turns out it peeled off really naturally. So I, I think it's very likely the case that flatbreads were the first breads.
4: We can all agree that bread rocks, but the inefficiency of its earliest cooking methods needed innovation to subsist. Without the advent of modern ovens, we'd have little distinction of crust to crumb. Valuing the expenditure of heath and gaining an awareness of how thermal mass works led our passion for baking burn long and bright.
2: But somebody figured out it would use a lot less um, wood if you would build uh, an oven. And the first ovens were likely uh, extensions of the uh, – covering it with a pot. Uh, there are uh, a lot of ancient Greek um, uh, artifacts that show these uh, terracotta ovens that uh, were, were basically like a really large pot. But that wouldn't be good enough for firing pottery and it wouldn't be good enough for um, melting metals. So people started building kilns, and somebody must have figured out that these kilns actually were pretty damn efficient for baking bread. But that led to one of the great schisms in the history of bread because there arose two different ideas of how you would uh, bake bread in an oven. One set of people said, right, we will bake our bread on the floor of the oven. Uh, if we had heated the oven by putting wood in there, that means we'd have to like move the ashes to one side and we'd bake on the floor. Uh, European breads are baked on the floor. Um, The uh, pita bread and other uh, breads around the Mediterranean that are like pita, they're baked on the floor. Somebody probably in India or, uh, uh, or Central Asia had a great idea. They said, Let's break bake bread on the ceiling of our ovens. Now, that actually makes for a simpler oven. Uh, a very simple tandoor oven is basically a pot that you put um, uh, stuff down the uh, fuel down the bottom of. Uh, when when people developed metal skewers, they could then put your tandoori chicken was just put in there with the one end of the metal skewer sitting on the floor of the oven in the fire, and the food would be positioned accordingly. And if you took a lump of dough, you could slap it on the ceiling of the hot oven, and it would stick there, and would bake, and you could pull it off.
4: We're assuming not everyone listening has a wood fire oven. Michael built one in northern Michigan with his father-in-law, but he's in the minority here. When talking more generally as Americans, it's often a question of electric or gas, conventional or convection.
2: It's very likely that, that the first ovens that we would call an oven uh, were an outgrowth of kilns that were made for either firing pottery or bricks or an outgrowth of kilns that would be used for smelting metals. We can't prove that, but there's, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. Those facilities were generally a single big thing that a village would share. You, you, you would have the metalsmith or you would have the potter. Um, you wouldn't have it in every home. But starting very early, people did start having home ovens. And the great thing about a kiln-style oven is it's made of a lot of brick. It's big. It's heavy. It's not a fragile thing. And unless you go at it with a sledgehammer or a wrecking ball, it's going to survive. So there's not a lot of mystery about when the earliest ones were. We find them. (laughs) Very very clearly, we find them. Whereas – for some of the earliest pots that were used to cover baking bread or a pot that was used like an oven, eh, much harder to find those because terracotta is a fragile thing. It gets broken. Uh, you don't always know the, the the purpose. But ovens start appearing uh, a variety of places. I think there are a variety of ovens in Mohandaro, which is one of the earliest big cities in the world. That's in what's today India. There are ovens in uh, very ancient ruins in Turkey. And those include home-style ovens. But an interesting thing is that the idea of sharing in communal ovens also was very old because we see lots of other cultures where there were no home ovens.
5: Richard Miskovic interacts with bread as an author, baker, and teacher, As it turns out, ancient ovens brought people together in a much more fundamental way than other things they may have had in common, like classes.
7: Well, if we go back, you know, to old, you know, villages, European villages that would have a communal oven where everyone didn't have to have their own and it would be fired on a certain day and everyone would know that they could go and bake that day. And and then also because of the descending heat window, people could come back and, you know, slow cook food. So... It would be, if you think about it, so communal. I mean, everyone's food is in the same oven. You would have to come together. People would know, you know, that they were a better baker than their neighbors. <laughs> and, um, and it still exists. You know, we still have these communal ovens that exist in some communities that bring, bring people together. And if you have food and fire, it definitely attracts, it
4: attracts people.
7: In France, you have... There was a bakery in Amiens, which burnt down under the Gallo-Roman times, and the breads they found there are pretty much like the medieval breads, or these little balls or more on their way to being these little balls of bread, which, if you look, there's a very famous um, tomb in Rome of a baker, and it shows the bread-making process. And you see the balls there, and it's very much like the the breads that you see in medieval images. Uh, But then in the south, and this is pretty amazing, it, this is a grave bread, apparently, and they had to reconstruct it. I think it had been shattered, but they have a drawing of the reconstruction, and it's this lovely bread about five inches across, maybe an inch and a half deep, um, with three slashes on it. And it's, it's a very elegant-looking bread. It almost certainly was made by a professional baker. So we actually have breads, and rather varied breads, uh, from Gaul as we as, as we do from several other cultures.
2: So once you start... Um professionalizing bread, uh, and once bread becomes a a vital thing to the uh, society, it it also became the first regulated food. Uh, So very early on, uh, you see both bakeries as centralized features in cities and societies, You see uh, granaries where the grain is stored, the same thing. Milling um, uh, grain into flour was centralized and there started to be laws. And the laws came about because, of course, a very, very human thing to do is to cheat. And uh, the Romans had a set of laws that would regulate what a loaf of bread, the size of it, the cost of it and various other uh, aspects, uh, what you could put in it. Uh, And that was because people would adulterate bread with straw, with sawdust, with chalk, with almost anything you can imagine someone has used to adulterate bread at some point in time.
4: Before we hear how bread rose to its current stature, we're going to take a quick break. Here's a word from our sponsors.
1: Bob's Red Mill is the presenting sponsor of Modernist Breadcrumbs. I recently had the pleasure of meeting Bob and touring around the Bob's Red Mill facility in Portland, Oregon. During that visit, I asked Bob about the history of Bob's Red Mill. Here's
8: what he had to say. Well, there's a book behind you, Michael. It says John Goffey's Mill. Why don't you look around behind you there and look at it? See it standing there? Well, it's always there because it's a memory of one day in Redding, California, where I was living at the time and running a Penny's Auto Center. I walked into the local library, a place that I spent a lot of time because I love to read. And that book was laying on one of the library tables, John Goffey's Mill by George Woodbury. And I picked it up and looked at it and could see right away that it was a story of George Woodbury who inherited John Goffey's mill in Bedford, New Hampshire. What he learned more than anything that he expresses is that the public would beat a path to his door for those whole grains. And it was true back in the 50s when this book was written. I read it, and then I thought, you know what? If I could find me some millstones... They might do the same to me, beat a pathway to my door. And Michael, that's what the public has done. And here we are.
1: To learn more about Bob's Red Mill's extensive line of whole grain products, as well as grab some delicious recipes and great coupon offers, head to bobsredmill.com podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believer in whole grain foods for every meal of the day.
4: William Rubel is a James Beard award-winning specialist in traditional cooking, on which he has written several books. He's going to take us back even further in time, then forward again, to show us the link between bread and cash. So,
9: the Egyptians paid their workers in bread 2000 BC, 2500 BC, so, that, so we're talking 4,000 years ago. <clears throat> the recipe had to be standardized or you couldn't pay somebody in bread. You'd have a job, you worked, and you got so much, you got a ration for so much bread or so much beer. And the ration specified the density of the beer because if you, if you have, say, uh, 50 grams of hops for a liter, I mean 50 grams of barley for a liter of water, that's a That'll be a beer of one um, alcohol content. And if you have 50 grams, then, of course, it's going to be a stronger beer. You know, heavy beer, lighter beer, more calories, fewer calories. So this was standardized for beer. It was also standardized for bread. They measured exactly and precisely. Europe has had very, very stringent bread laws from at least the Middle Ages. In the British, it was called the Assize for Bread. It specified how much a loaf cost, how much it would weigh, and they, they actually did test bakings to make sure that when you baked a real loaf, that, that, that it would fit into the government table. So bakers have always weighed. It's a complete, it's one of these modern myths that there was no world until today. So. Um, there are very precise... The French really got into this encyclopedia trip in the last quarter of the 18th century. So there actually are some very precise French bread recipes in encyclopedias from that period. But bread's bread. I mean, flour's flour. One thing people, I think, for, 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 for listeners to understand is that once the grains were domesticated, one... The, the first step in domestication was increasing grain size. But once the grain size was increased to the point that it made it profitable to farm it, which occurred like 10,000 years ago, the grain sizes have really not changed. But how does the past taste today?
1: Are we even eating the same breads as our ancestors or even enjoying it in the same ways? The bread basket at a restaurant, you know, the one you get on the table as an offering before appetizers, it's a bit out of place and was often the cheese course, if not the cheese plate. You know, the, uh, of the Roman
2: breads, uh, I kind of like their cheese bread, although it was really very cheesy. It's got like, it, calling it bread is a little bit odd. It, it's, um, I suppose, closer to cheesecake in a weird way. It's like half cheese. So if you start with good cheese, it actually comes out really (laughs) – it's kind of good. The trencher was interesting. Throughout uh, a good chunk of the Middle Ages, uh, bread was actually your plate. Uh, They had a very dense, uh, hard piece of bread that was the equivalent of a uh, replaceable plate. It's very much like having a paper plate today uh, except it was edible. Um, Not always edible by the people who were doing the eating, interestingly. Um, uh, Some trenchers were made to be eaten by the person. But there were other trenchers which uh, the fancy people, the rich folks or the nobles, uh, would eat off of. And then the gravy-soaked but still pretty hard thing would be given off to the poor to eat. So that way you got – uh, at least some of the sauce of the meat and the other uh, f- spices, the other fancy stuff that the rich guys got. Uh, so trenchers are kind of cool. I, I wouldn't it, – it's cool in a historical context and it's fun to to do it. I, I wish those medieval pleasure fair folks or other things actually used trenchers. They They typically don't and it actually is historically wrong that they don't.
5: The next time you're at a medieval fair – ask for a bread plate and see what they do. Aiming for historical accuracy is an arduous task. The shelf life of bread isn't that long. So how do we know what these breads looked or tasted like? Preservation, of course, in the form of an erupting volcano.
2: One of the great moments in the history of bread because of what happened was an August afternoon in 79 AD when Vesuvius erupted and gave the folks in Pompeii and Herculaneum a really bad day. And the thing was awesome about that is it preserved bakeries, it preserved loaves of bread, it preserved all kinds of things, and a huge amount of our bread of ancient Rome is based on what was discovered empirically at Pompeii and Herculaneum. Amusingly, one of the other great sources for bread was a Roman historian, intellectual general. He had a lot of hats named Pliny the Elder. And Pliny wrote extensively about natural history and science. And he was called Pliny the Elder because he actually was well in his 70s. When he died, how? He saw Vesuvius erupting, sailed his boat across the Bay of Naples and went to investigate and was overcome by fumes. Anyway, Pompeii bread is literally the loaves of bread exist, the ovens exist, and most intriguing of all, there are some Roman frescoes of bread that exist.
4: Though illustrated, bread recipes weren't recorded until eras after. They were intangibly imparted through touch, sight, smell, and taste. Historically, and even today,
9: most bakers don't write their bread recipes down. Of course, the women in the house, women made bread for the family, they never wrote their recipes down, not even once, ever. Professional bakers were in guilds, they didn't have cookbooks, they learned how to make bread through apprenticeship systems, they didn't write their recipes down. And even today, very few bakers write their recipes down, more now than before. But the fact is, the recipes you get in cookbooks aren't really the recipes they're baking in the bakery. So if you, if, if you said, okay, what was the bread like in 1965? <laughs> in New York, or in Chicago, or in Rio de Janeiro, or in Johannesburg, who the hell knows?
1: Who does know? Even with all these common threads throughout time, not everything was translated. We could say semantics aside, but that's exactly the point. Linguistically speaking, we have to have a common language, a bread lexicon.
6: There is, it is one of the most ambiguous things um, in the realm of bread making, because I can call a country bread pretty much from what we've learned and what we've read. Any bread could be a country bread. Um, that's not, that's not the case. Um, there's, there's a lot of information about country breads that you could, somebody has a, a, um, a bread that is hundred percent whole wheat, they call it country bread. And then another guy or gal has a, um, a sourdough that is 10% whole wheat and they also call it country bread. What, what are we... What are we calling country? Why? Why is it that you and you and you think that this is a country bread? You go to Germany. What is country bread there? Landbrot. These are things that the people in Germany decided to put in a dough and call it. You know, this is the bread of the land. So, in France, de campagna is going to be different. This country bread is going to be different from the country bread in Germany. These there's so much. Um, I would say, like, poetic license to call pretty much any bread a country bread.
1: Bread, you rise from flour, water, and fire. Dense or light, flattened or round, you duplicate the mother's rounded womb and earth's twice-yearly swelling. How simple you are, bread, and how profound. Ode to Bread by Pablo Neruda.
2: We discovered a bunch of the uh, things that people believed about bread from Pompeii were just wrong because they were like typos or they had misread some, some original account from the 19th century of the first excavations and these were uh, continually repeated over and over again. Um, and eventually we decided let's recreate the fresco. So we – did a little casting call for people at our lab that looked like the Romans that were in the fresco. We made costumes, we made a set, and by God, we recreated that fresco. Uh, We also came up with a new interpretation of the fresco. Uh, It had been believed initially that this was a bread baker. Then people said, no, this is a politician giving bread away. Um, Our theory, and of course there's no way you can really tell Uh, All of these theories are great to argue about because you all have scant evidence for it. We think this was the equivalent of those pictures you find in uh, restaurants and used to find in the Carnegie Deli of, hey, celebrity customer came or, you know, President Obama came to my bakery. So you get a picture of the owner and the famous people. And we think that's what this was. And we think it was actually painted in the house that was owned by the baker. And this is like his big pride point of, hey, these important foreign guys came to my bakery. So so this is just like if um, uh, the president or Beyonce comes to your bakery, uh, you commemorate it with a photo and you put it on the wall. So we think that's what this guy did.
4: Our bread idols are the loaves we worship and revere. And even the most familiar are still celebrated when well-baked.
7: Otherwise, uh, the perhaps in terms of modern bread, something struck me because when I was my before last trip to France, I was trying to photograph certain kinds of bread because I realized I just didn't, you know, people forget. This is one thing about bread history. People forget to just photograph the breads because they figure they'll be there forever. And then, of course, they're not. Uh, so I wanted to photograph the ficelle and the Bataille, which used to be very common. They're just variants on the baguette. And it was very hard to find them. Uh, and what I realized was that the baguette has become ubiquitous. Um, already in the 19th century, we had people complaining that the croissant had driven regional rolls, because there used to be all kinds of colorful, strangely shaped regional rolls. And by the end of the 19th century, everybody's making croissant, nobody's making all these wonderful little regional breads. What's happening in France now, you will go to a bakery and they'll have a spelt baguette and maybe a rye baguette and a sourdough baguette. They'll just have all these different varieties of baguette, but no fusel and no out. So you're getting a dominance of one kind of bread, uh, almost like before the 17th century when all the breads were round.
1: As we'll see later in the series, American regional breads are the parameters of this project.
6: Well, uh, there's... Boston brown bread used to be not a sweet bread. It used to not have chemical leaveners. It actually used to be a bread that was fermented with a leban. It's pretty dense, but it it is, I would say, like a, a real American bread. Anadama is, you know, there are so many stories about how it got its name. Uh, there's no conclusive answer for it. I mean, some people think they have the conclusive answer, but there's it's it's such a folkloric thing that it's hard to pin down exactly where the term came from. A lot of breads in the U.S. were not yeast risen, although there is the whole like uh, San Francisco sourdough and how there's a number of locally named sourdough, San Francisco being one of them. But there's also you know there there were There were some people that actually did maintain the sourdough and they took it with them and they would make bread and campfire bread and whatnot. But that was that was not a very common thing. The more common things that you're going to have are breads that are not yeast risen. So we don't cover those. We don't cover breads in our book that are not yeast risen. I mean, that's kind of where we drew the line where if it didn't have yeast, we didn't really. I mean, because you could just keep going, you know, I mean, there's so many things called bread that don't have yeast,
5: Jim Leahy is a master baker. He is the founder of Sullivan Street Bakery in New York City, as well as Co., a pizza restaurant. He also has opinions on what we call bread.
10: Language would be something that is lost generationally. So there are people who are, you know, uh, there are a couple maybe old signore and signoras that are in their 80s now that have a working knowledge and nomenclature about regarding bread, sayings, uh, um, types and forms of bread that they remember from their childhood that have vanished, completely vanished. No one's doing, I don't think anyone's doing this study yet in Italy. I would love to be the person, if I were, if if I were a rich man, (laughs) bidi bidi bidi, but someone should do this study of the loss of bread forms in language, not let alone form, in Italy in every major urban center, uh, even in, extends into the countryside. You know, things have simplified. You know, there aren't. You know, there's still a lot of traditional forms, but a lot of them have been, have been lost, uh, and the language for them as well, for especially for younger people, Millenn- Italian millennials. You know, no different than American millennials. We're all. We're all millennials.
1: The etymology of bread is inherently within its ingredients. That's the culture we're striving to preserve. Grain strains, traditional milling methods, regional recipes, all of which can be improved by innovation while still artifact to the bakers that came before us. Buried in the ashes, immortalized in art, inherited through the rote motions of handling a dough and forming a loaf, with all that we've learned, we've lost a lot too. With Modernist Breadcrumbs, we hope to resurrect that fire within us all, to become a baker, encouraging bread in all its forms. We hope to equip each and every one of you with the knowledge and know-how to feed your hungry hearts. We love bread. I know you do too. So let's break bread together.
5: This has been episode one of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Preferments on history. Our theme music is by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowes. Hear more on Instagram at carolclevelandsings.
4: In the next episode, we'll be talking about grain, flour, and milling, under the title Grains of Civilization.
5: This has been a labor of loaf, and we hope you'll listen to grain.
4: We dreams, breadheads.